reading from Genesis. God also said, look, I have given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. We are jumping back into our Genesis series. As some of you may remember, we started a series on Genesis back in April 2023, so it's almost been a year. Uh, we went through, I think, four or five sermons, and then we breaked for Summer of Psalms. After Summer of Psalms, we did Advent, and then we've had a bunch of one-offs, and now we're getting back in to the book of Genesis. And I want to make it clear, the reason why we are a church that loves to preach expositionally, verse by verse, through one book of the Bible at a time from beginning to end, is for several reasons. One, um, a challenge arises in that a pastor or a preacher will naturally gravitate towards verses they feel like they want to preach on. They think the church needs to hear. Rather than preaching verse by verse through one book of the Bible, you allow in God's sovereignty and in God's time to him to communicate to the church what he wants to say. The other thing is that it avoids the potential of avoiding tough verses, verses on hell or sin or the uniqueness of marriage and sex. Those are verses that if you're preaching kind of, if you're, if you're using the Bible as like a hobby lobby bumper sticker favorite verse guide, you tend to just sort of accidentally skip over those things. And we don't want to do that here. Another benefit is that the Bible is ultimately one story of God reconciling the world to himself. And when we spend time in one book, we begin to take, uh, our imaginations begin to capture what it means that the Bible is one story about God reconciling the world to himself. And then on a personal note too, it is a tremendous opportunity for us as members of the church to fold in into our own time in God's word, the same book that we're going through every single Sunday. I mean, if you think about it, like, you know what's coming up next. You can spend time in Genesis reading through it, praying through it, making your own notes. That way, when you show up on Sunday, it's like, oh, I remember reading through that verse. I had these observations. I had these kind of questions. Let's see how badly Oscar screws it all up. There's, there's a lot of benefit here to preaching uh, in this way. And for that reason, I'm really excited that we're back to that. <clears throat> On that note, as we've said before, uh, Genesis, if, if the Bible is God's story of reconciling the world to himself, then Genesis is the origin story. It's the beginning of it all. And because it's the origin story, this ancient book has answers to our deepest questions. I mean, think about that. A book that was written so long ago by a, you know, 
wandering Middle Eastern man would have answers to your deepest questions thousands of years later here in America. Here's the thing, though. Genesis can often be misunderstood. Uh, one of the narratives that we'll often hear is that it's like, it's like either Genesis or science, science. It's like those two things are pitted against each other. Man, I actually think that's just a non-issue. It's important to recognize that the purpose of Genesis is not to tell us how the world was created, though there is information in there about how the world was created. But if you're reading Genesis and that's the only thing you're pulling from it, you're missing the forest for the trees. Genesis is more about the focus, the primary intent is not how, but who created. What did he create? And why did he create these things? And so in that sense, both like the natural world and science in Genesis can both be incredibly helpful to us. If all we had was the natural world and science to discover and understand it, the, the end result is that we would be like a blacksmith 5,000 years ago. Imagine he comes across a blueprint on how to build a, a jet propulsion engine. Like he knows nothing about aerodynamics, about combustible engines, about that kind of fuel. He's never seen this kind of metal before. He would have everything he needs to understand how to build something, but he has no idea what that thing is. And if it breaks, how to fix it, how to put it to use. You see, the natural world in science gives us this tremendous opportunity to create a blueprint, to reverse engineer what God has done in this world, how he brought it out. But if that's all we have, then we're like that blacksmith with a blueprint. We don't know what it is, why it's so messed up, what role you and I have to play in it all, and what God is ultimately intending to do through the mess, the muck, and the mire. And so Genesis gives us the who, the what, and the why. One other thing that we need to address is that Genesis is a story, but it is told much different than the stories that you and I are used to hearing. Genesis is more like an anthology. See, stories that you and I listen to on a regular daily basis, and we are master story listeners, like we have more content available at our fingertips. Even when we don't realize we're hearing stories, every advertising and marketing campaign, we are constantly hearing stories and telling stories. And the vast majority of stories we hear and tell on a regular basis has one beginning, one middle, one end, one narrative, one genre, one hero. But Genesis is an anthology of sorts. It's episodic. It is a well-designed anthology. It has multiple beginnings, multiple middles, multiple ends, multiple genres, one narrative, though, and one hero. And the hero of Genesis is not Adam or Noah or Abraham or Isaac, but the snake crusher himself, Jesus Christ. One other thing, in order for us to get Genesis right, and what we hope to do, or as you read it in your own time, uh, I think it's important to notice that Genesis works kind of like a palindrome, 
for those of you who are like, what was the palindrome thing again? A palindrome is a word that is spelled the same way, both frontward and backward, like the word kayak, K-A-Y-A-K, spelled frontward, backwards, K-A-Y-A-K. The word mom is the same way. Here's how Genesis is kind of like a palindrome. One of the commentators that I read pointing out that Genesis has everything you need to know, and the rest of the Bible is simply commentary. In other words, to understand Genesis, you need to be able to read the rest of the Bible. On the other hand, I've read another commentary that said, in order for you to understand the rest of the Bible, you first have to understand Genesis. You see how that works? Like in order to get the Bible, you got to get Genesis, but in order to get, the, in order to get Genesis, you got to understand the rest of the Bible. Now, if that's confusing to you, here's the main point. We've got to get Genesis right, or everything else starts to fall apart. I've heard Matt Chandler use this great metaphor about first things, where he says it's like buttoning up your T-shirt. If you, if you miss the first button and you button it wrong, then everything else like works wrong right after that, right? Genesis is our first button. We need to get that one right. With that said, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into our sermon today. Heavenly Father, as we uh, get back into the book of Genesis, God, we thank you that you've given this gift to us, that in your sovereignty and in your kindness, you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in the form of a story. What, what, a, what an act of mercy and creativity. What a, what a display of the kind of God that you are, that you would reveal yourself to us in the form of a story. You are the great narrator the great artist. God, help us to fall in love with you by seeing the story that's unfolding with great intent and precision. You are doing something. You have been doing something. Reveal that thing to us now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we've got three points today. The first is we're going to look at the a sacred view of what it means to work. We're going to look at a secular view of work, and then we are going to look at the Savior's work that he has done for us. When, um, you know, we talk often about the Reformers, and the Reformers did a lot of amazing things. One of the things that's often overlooked is that the Reformers also redeemed an aspect of what it means to work. You see, in the Middle Ages, what the Roman Catholic Church had done is it had this narrative that was like, hey, the work the priests are doing, that is sacred work. That is God's work. And all of the other work that you're doing out there, that's secular stuff. That's lower than. But what you can do is financially support the sacred work that we are doing over here. And the reformers wanted to do away with that. They did not believe that was true. There was this shoemaker who, after getting saved by reading a leaflet, which is kind of like a gospel tract that Martin Luther wrote, he writes Martin Luther a letter. And in that letter, he's like, I've come to know my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am just this lowly shoemaker. What should I do with my life? I want it to be meaningful. I want it to be important. I want to do God's work. Should I you know, sell my business and go into ministry and become a priest and go back to school and blah, 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 blah? And Luther's response to him 
was make excellent shoes. That was Luther's response. Like, you want to glorify God in everything that you do? Make excellent shoes. Where did Luther get that theology from? He gets it from these verses. Look again. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And here it is. God saw all that he had made. If you guys got your Bibles or an app, like you may want to highlight or underline that. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Do you see the implications of what's going on here? God, the gardener. God, the gardener. You see, to Luther... This meant there is no differentiation between the secular and the sacred. The work of the pastor, the priest, the preacher is no more sacred than the work of the social worker, the woodworker, the salesman, the hairdresser, the banker, the dentist, or the teacher. You know what else this means? It means to to do something with our hands, to do something, to create, to build, to design, to bring order out of chaos is not a part of the fall. Like to be productive is not a byproduct of us living in a fallen world. And I think that sometimes in our minds, we think like when we get to heaven, we're going to be sitting on clouds playing harps and we're going to have nothing to do. But the reality is, is that Adam and Eve, they were called to work. Look what it says. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. You realize what he's saying there? That's like all joyful work. Have sex, have kids and work. That's, that's a gift to them. Go and do the, uh, live this amazing life in paradise. This is what it looks like to be in paradise with God. Now, the question naturally arises, well, is all work sacred? Is there some work that's not sacred? And that's a really good question because like if a drug dealer sent Luther a letter, he wouldn't respond by saying, make excellent drugs, right? And so there's three things to consider. Is my work glorifying to God? Unless you're uh, a legalized drug dealer, which gives you medication. Why am I forgetting what that person's called? Pharmacist, thank you very much. Thank you, yeah. You guys get a pass. Uh, The first thing we need to realize is that we have this creaturely feature and that we are made in God's image. You see, the Eastern culture believes that like the highest esteem is to not work, is to sit around, eat grapes, and have yourself fanned off while other people do stuff. And when we hear that, we think like, I don't know, man, that sounds pretty good. But the truth is, you weren't made to do nothing. You would get bored. Like every now and then I tell my wife, man, I'd love to retire and sit on the couch and just let you be my sugar mama. And she's like, no, you wouldn't. You would go crazy. You'd last like a week. And she's right. Maybe I'd last a week. Maybe you'd last three weeks. Maybe some of you would last three years. Doesn't matter. Eventually, 
you would find yourself living a meaningless life and you would need to do something. Why? Because we are created in the image of a God who is a maker, a builder, a designer, a doer. And he has grafted that aspect of himself onto you and I. And so we are called to do something beautiful. I think actually we see this. I think we see this in children. Like they don't have a concept of work with thorns and thistles, right? How many, like how many of our kids or how many of you when you were kids, like you, you played the hairdresser, right? I, like, I know my daughter used to play like she was a hairdresser. And now like Evangeline, she, she loves to get her horses out and like clean out the hooves and brush the hair. I know it's not called hair, Kelly, I'm sorry. Uh, and clean out the stables. And like, basically she's playing the role of the worker. Why? Because in her mind and in her heart, there's something that yearns to do something beautiful, to do something good. She does not know work in the context of having to sweat and worry about finances and keep our jobs. She knows it as something beautiful and good. Uh, I love the way I love the way J.R.R. Tolkien talks about it. He reminds us that God created ex nihilo, which is out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing, and basically, He leads us this sandbox. Like if you've ever played Minecraft or seen your kids, it's like that. He leaves us this sandbox to go in there and and, and recreate. We are a part of sub creation. That's what He says that he has given us the sandbox to do something beautiful, to make order out of chaos, to rearrange his already made world for his glory. And so, like anytime a recruiter helps someone land a job, order out of chaos. Anytime a barber nails a fade, order out of chaos. Anytime a banker like helps save money, order out of chaos. Anytime a stay-at-home mom manages to get her kids to, uh, to school on time, literally order out of chaos. This is what it means to be made in God's image, a gardener, a doer, a builder, a maker, to rearrange his already arranged world. The second thing, how do we know our work is good? And is it good for the community, right? Like a drug dealer destroys lives. Prostitution in the porn industry destroys marriages. These things are not good for the community. If your, if your job somehow serves and blesses the community, you are doing God's work. You are living out your image-bearing qualities. And then lastly, one of the questions that we often ask is like, am I doing what God has called me to do, which is an interesting thing because we often think about calling as like this future thing. I think God has called me to do the thing I'm not already doing. But actually, that word calling meant your calling is what you're doing right now. What am I called to do? It's what I'm doing right now. That doesn't mean we can't have ambition, but the important thing to recognize is that God has us in the place that we're in for such a time as this. I love the way Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 puts it. For you've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, 
not from works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship. Here it is, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do, Christian. God, God's ordained plan is all over your life. You don't happen to have the job you're in. God intends for you to live out your image-bearing qualities in whatever it is that you're doing that glorifies him and that's good for the people around you. You have been called to do a sacred thing, to make excellent shoes. I have a friend uh, who owns a coffee shop, and no, it's not Lee, though he is also a friend who owns coffee and shops. Uh, This friend, is, he's, he's great. He loves the Lord. He's hilarious. Uh, he's kind, it still sounds like I'm talking about Lee, I realize, but I'm not talking about Lee. I'm talking about someone else. And one day we're hanging out and chatting and he, he says this as a joke, uh, but he's like, you know, basically all I'm doing is making dirty water for people. And uh, again, he doesn't believe that's actually true, but I was still compelled to like go, well, actually, like, yeah, if, if like, look, if you drill it down to the most naturalistic thing, I guess you can look at it as I'm just making dirty water. But actually, you're reordering God's already made world. You're being intentional about serving a great cup of coffee. You're providing a space for people to gather and talk. Like you are doing something sacred and beautiful. And so are you when you reorder God's already made world. Now, for any of us that's been working for any period of time, it's like, yeah, dude, that sounds great. But work is hard. Work sucks sometimes. And you're right. And you're right. Where did it all go wrong is ultimately the question. John 3, John, Genesis 3, 17. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the fields. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. This is what work looks like post-fall. You see, the form, what work is intended to me, is beautiful and good, but we experience it in a fallen and broken world. We experience so much of God's blessing in a fallen world. We experience the blessing of sex, and yet we have the curse of it being abused and destroying lives and marriages. We have the blessing of wine given to us by God, and yet we have the abuse of alcohol. We have the blessing of being able to do something, to be makers and creators and artists in the image of God, and yet we have to experience that in the midst of thorns and thistles. Work has been corrupted, and for that matter, we abuse it sometimes. Uh, I, I tend to ruin things for Kelly. It's, it's one of my, like, it's one of my husband gifts. Uh, when Kelly and I first got married, like, I was, you know, I'm still into Tom Waits, and, like, I, I really wanted her to like Tom Waits with me, so, like, we listened to it in the car, we listened to it at date nights, we would listen to it as we were making dinner, we listened to it all the time. Like, I came in too hard, guys. It's my bad. Uh, and because of that, like, she doesn't like Tom Waits. You know, it's my fault. I, I got I own it. I messed it up. 
And I get it. I understand it. Like if I first met Kelly and she was like, hey, you love breakfast burritos? Here's a breakfast burrito, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and dessert every day for five years. I would like never want to see a breakfast burrito again. See, the problem is not Tom Waits and it's not breakfast burritos. The problem is that those things can be abused. And that is what's happened with work. We've already talked about what happened in the Middle Ages where there was this divide between secular and sacred. And then something else happened in the Industrial Revolution, which is that actually, like the way I've been referring to it and the way you and I refer to it, work, that's actually very unusual. That word actually did not develop until the Industrial Revolution. Because up until that point, what you did was your craft. And everybody had a craft or a trade. And everybody worked together in their small little villages. And you went to the woodworker for a new chair. And you went to this guy for fruit. And you went to that person for this. And everyone worked together in their own trades, working excellently for one another, trading and bartering. And then what happens in the Industrial Revolution is that companies create these big factories and conveyor belt production. And now instead of buying a wooden chair from a woodworker, you're buying it for a lot cheaper that was made on a conveyor belt in a factory that's paying somebody less money. And suddenly your craft or your trade simply became, I got to go to work. I got to go do this thing. It became less communal. It became less about serving one another. And then what ends up happening is that the 1970s hit. And what's interesting is that the phrase meaningful work was, again, not a part of the human lexicon until the 1970s. The sociologist uh, Jamie McCollum points out that it didn't exist. And what basically happened in the 70s is that corporations were moving to get rid of pension plans, reduce annual pay, uh, break up unions, and at the same time, increase employee efficiency. And so they got together and are like, the only way we're going to get people to buy in is if we tell them they should find meaning in their work. So here's a quote from the book. It says that, uh, the New York Stock Exchange chairman says, with dollar compensation no longer a factor in job motivation, management must develop a better understanding of the more elusive and less tangible factor that adds up to job satisfaction. And so the phrases like, do what you'll love and you'll never work in day in your life, was developed to make, use, make you feel good about getting paid less. Where does this all leave us? it leaves us with thorns and thistles. It leaves us with trying to find meaning in our jobs. And then to add up all that, we've got technology, which makes like work this omnipresent experience that we're always like answering emails on the couch while hanging out with friends, checking reports on the toilet, like nonstop, just always everywhere for all of us. But worst of all, we are trying to justify our existence through work. Deep down inside, every one of us thinks that if we work hard enough and we accomplish something, that we justify who we are. That somehow providing equals like privilege, I, I deserve to be here. And when things don't go right, Somehow, like if we're not making enough or things don't go the way we expected to come, it, it's like 
what we do for work is so infused into our value that our entire identity is at risk. This is so unusual. And here's the unfortunate reality. Well, you know what it is? Uh, It reminds me of, I was reminded of the Rocky Balboa moment where he's like training and people are worried he's going to die stepping into the ring and like his wife or whatever asks him, what are you doing this for? And he's like, man, if I can go to the distance, then I'll know I'm not a bum. See, deep down, I think all of us are like, I just need to know I'm not a bum. I just need to prove, I just need to justify. If I can just do this, then I'll prove I'm not a bum. Here's the worst part though. The worst part is that for those of us who actually make it to the top, not us like me, but for those of the people who actually make it to the top, they'll find that they aren't actually justified, that it doesn't work. You guys remember what Jim Carrey said? He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever demanded, they ever dreamed of, so they can see that it's not the answer. You cannot justify yourself by what you do. And so what's the answer? The answer is our Savior's work. And that is the good news, is that you don't have to justify yourself because you've already been justified by the work of God. Here's the gospel in the verses that we're reading in Genesis. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Notice how, much time, how many times it says he had done the work. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work work. If you miss it, you won't see it. Why do you think God rested? He was tired? No. God rested, not because he needed to, but because he knew that we would need rest. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the Lord of Sabbath. What does that mean? It means that our ultimate rest is found in Jesus Christ. It means that the only way you and I will ever be justified, the only way we'll ever find satisfying meaning and purpose in our lives is by looking at the already finished work of Jesus Christ. No career, no organization, no organized home life, no amount of money will ever justify you will ever make you feel like you're enough. And if you don't realize that, man, you will sacrifice your time, your identity, your family, your very self on the altar of meaningful work, and you will never get what you're looking for. In these verses that we just read, God is basically looking at his finished work, and he's saying, it is finished. It is good, and it is finished. And he says that again in the New Testament. As Jesus gets up on the cross and his hands are nailed and his body is ripped and torn and he's got the crown of thorns on his head, he says, it is finished. The work of justification, the work of worth and value. And look to Christ. Look to him and see 
that the work is finished. Find rest for your weary souls in that. And then go make excellent shoes for the glory of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.